Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 15221522. Thanks for joining us today as we discover the second half of 1,000 years of global financial data with our guest, Brian Taylor. And we will get to that in a few moments. And you know, so many people are looking at such short-term stuff. You got to look at the longer term. You got to look at the longer thing. And really, it's very hard to understand history without a longer context And we'll talk about history if we have a moment today, because some whack job area leaders in Illinois are calling for people, for schools to abolish history. Yes, history is bias. It's not fair. I mean, we live in a world of snowflakes. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. So Naresh, one of our investment counselors, posted this article. It says, Chicago area leaders call for Illinois to abolish history classes. Yes. State Representative LaShawn K. Ford said, current history teachings overlook the contributions of women and minorities. Well, we have revised history so many times in these textbooks. I can't imagine that they overlook anybody except the people we mostly learned about, (laughs) you know, uh, now it's like, oh, Columbus was evil. The founding fathers were evil. Ay, ay, ay. Where does this end? It just, I'm, I'm telling you folks, I am calling on an equal rights affirmative action movement for five foot 11 inch people. We do not have enough rights. We are underrepresented. Yes. If you're 5'11", reach out to me. Let's create a website and a campaign and hire some lobbyists and go demand money from Congress. They need to give us money because we're 5'11". And you know, the most successful people, the people running the world are usually taller than us. It's just not fair. It's just not fair. Okay. So we start off today with something from Diana Olick. She does a great job reporting, I got to say. Home prices see strong June bounce, but economists warn it likely won't last. And I agree. I agree. It's not going to last. But we don't really care that much because we invest in a multi-dimensional asset class. So we're not worried about prices on a little bounce or a little decline. That's not what we're in it for. We like yield, baby. It's all about yield. Okay, let's listen in. 
Welcome back, everybody. A blockbuster report that comes out on the housing market is just there now. Let's get to Diana. Blockbuster report. Diana, good morning. Good morning, Becky. Yeah, the first read on June home prices is a big one. They jumped a full percentage point nationally, which is the largest monthly gain for June in seven years. And that's according to CoreLogic. Annually, prices jumped 4.9% compared with a 4.1% gain in May. Now, home prices got a boost from record low mortgage rates, tight supply and strong demand. Much of that demand pushed by the pandemic. The expectation is that prices will moderate over the next year, at least according to CoreLogic. But of course, all real estate is local, even now. I love it. See why I like her? She said, all real estate is local. You've been hearing that from me for 16 years. All real estate is local. So important. A lot of the people interviewed on CNBC and in other media, they just forget that so quickly that all real estate is local. Harry Dent forgets that. All of these people talking about real estate or housing with that broad brush, ah, you're driving me crazy, folks. Stop saying that. All real estate is local. Yes, that's true. So stop talking about the nationwide housing market and the nationwide real estate market. There just ain't no such thing. Philadelphia saw prices up 8.4% annually. That's thanks to fleeing New Yorkers. But prices... So Philly Dilly up 8.4%. San Francisco down 0.2%. I bet a lot of these these foolish people thought San Francisco could never go down. (laughs) They never learned about linear cyclical hybrid markets because they never listened to this podcast. Yes. They should have been listening. We're slightly down in San Francisco as tech workers can now work from wherever they want. Forecasts are also split. Las Vegas, which depends entirely on tourism for its economy, could see home prices fall more than 11% in the next year, according to economists. But in San Diego, prices are expected to gain over 4% because, again, of that tight supply. And supply is the key word looking for. And by the way, remember, this is a forecast, okay? So some of the numbers she talked about were actual numbers, some were forecast numbers. So be careful, um, you know, make sure you understand that. But San Diego, again, a tale of two markets right in San Diego, all cyclical, right? That's all cyclical for sure. But, but San Diego, a lot of it very suburban, but some of it very urban very downtownish. So in the downtown area, if you had the stats to split that up, I'm sure you would be seeing a much different picture. That's people fleeing downtown to suburban markets. That's what's causing that. You're seeing huge demand from the home builders because there's so little existing home supply. So if the builders really push construction, then prices could take a breather. But new construction has been, well, not so much lately because the builders are hamstrung by lack of land, labor, and material. And so what she said is true. Yes, home price appreciation could take a breather, but it's very unlikely because what would have to happen? Well, the cost of all of the ingredients with which they build a home would have to decline, and that could happen. Now, remember, the one commodity that is somewhat, not completely, but it's somewhat of an indicator for other commodities, not completely. And it is copper, as they call it, Dr. Copper. You know, they call it Mr. Market and Dr. Copper. I'm sure 
there will be complaints that they where where is Miss Market? Oh, I'm sorry, not Miss or Mrs. It would be Ms. Market. Where is Ms. Market in there? Oh, yes. But to be sure, someone is offended. Yes, someone is offended. So driven by low inventory, median home prices reach record high in July. She was just talking about June. This is July, this article. I'm looking at in Housing Wire. And it said California sees a 50% drop in listings year over year. So even some of these cyclical markets like, you know, you just saw San Diego, okay, having some good times. But again, not likely to last, in my opinion, because those markets were already in trouble and they will continue to see what Meredith Whitney talked about on the show years ago, the state of the states where there is an outward migration from these business-unfriendly places who who also happen to be, or that also happen to be, in many times, cyclical markets are also business-unfriendly many, many of the times. Not all of them, not all of them. So interesting stuff. Two metros that actually saw declines in median listing prices now, that just is what listings are coming on the market. Or Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach at a negative 1.5%. So, yeah, you know, interesting, interesting. And see, Florida, as hot as Florida is and as well as it's been doing real estate-wise, you know, it's had some, uh, it's had some bad news as far as uh, COVID-1984 recently, where Numbers are high, and it's it's so funny how the media is and what, what it makes people think. People from all over the country, all over the world, they reach out to me and they say, hey, Jason, are you okay? I heard there's lots of infections in Florida. Well, yeah, I'm fine. It hasn't affected my life one iota. But, you know, that's how people are. That's how That's how people think. They don't look at the real picture. They look at the crazy stuff the media paints, and they just get really, really confused. So we've got to talk about more, there's more, on the work-at-home revolution. I've got some really interesting graphs. Well, let me just share one of them with you, and i got to jump to a conference call here, and we've got to get to our guest. But this one is fascinating. This will be the last thing, then we'll get to our guest, okay? Lender of last resort. So as you might have learned in your history classes, don't call them history, it's history, If you learned this in your history class, then you would have heard the expression, the lender of last resort, which really became known in the Great Depression in the 30s, well, 1929 starting, and, you know, J.P. Morgan and all of this. So that's the Federal Reserve, the private corporation controlled by who knows who, (laughs) nobody knows, get your tinfoil hat out, Rothschilds, et cetera, et cetera. They're the lender of last resort. But they aren't just on the American team. They're propping up a lot of the world because the money lent by the Fed to other central banks. This is other central banks in other countries, not in the U.S. This is billions of dollars. So the Federal Reserve, our U.S., Federal Reserve, not a government entity, mind you, just a private corporation, but a pseudo-governmental whatever. Nobody knows exactly, but we've talked about that before. So they've lended about $440 billion, with a B, almost half a trillion, 
with a T, to the Bank of Japan, Japan's central bank. They've lent about 230 billion to the ECB, the European Central Bank, and they've lent maybe, I'm looking at a graph, a chart, so it's not an exact number, about 80 billion to the Bank of England and about 60 billion to the Bank of Korea. That would be South Korea, clearly. (laughs) And then they've lent a whole bunch of money, about another 50 billion to a bunch of other central banks. So there you go, folks. That includes the Bank of Mexico, the Swiss National Bank, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and central banks of Denmark and Norway. Now, why the heck Norway would need a loan from the U.S. is beyond me. Norway is so rich. They're just, I mean, that's ridiculous. Why are we loaning them money? Why is our Federal Reserve loaning them money? And, you know, same is really true of, well, a lot of these countries. I mean, South Korea is really rich. Australia's doing pretty darn well. Singapore's doing well. You know, I don't know. Switzerland? Yeah, they got the cheese with the holes in it. I don't know. Maybe the banking system has the same problem. Not sure. But, you know, that's that's a famous banking system in Switzerland, right? Swiss banks. All right. Let's get to our guest. What else do I have to announce to you? Oh, yes. Be sure to join us for the live stream on Sunday. Coffee Talk. Let's do some coffee talk Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on live stream on Facebook and YouTube. We'll look forward to seeing you there. We're going to have some interesting stuff coming up for you. And also, we have, well, we got a lot of stuff. I'm not going to go into it right now. I told you we'd get to our guest. Here he is. Take us through history a little bit, and especially because your data goes back so far, and that's what I just love about what you do. Too many people are looking at such short-term analyses of of everything. Let's just look back 102 years. We don't need to go back 1,000, but talk to us about the Spanish flu, and of course, started in Kansas City probably, so I don't know why it's called the Spanish flu, but uh, (laughs) what happened economically, and what was the recovery like from that, and does it apply to our world today, or is it just a completely different thing? Well, in a lot of ways, it is a completely different thing, because you have to remember that the Spanish flu not only happened throughout the world, but it happened in 1918, in the middle of World War One. And World War One acted as a tool to spread the Spanish flu from Kansas City to Europe and to the rest of the world. So if you want to look at it from an economic point of view, I mean, prior to the coronavirus coming into play, you had international trade. You had huge amounts of imports and exports throughout the world. But the world in 1918 was more of a closed economy because of World War I. And so on the one hand, that did help the Spanish flu to spread. But on the other hand, part of the worry is that now there's less travel. There's less interaction with the rest of the world. And that's what's really hurting us badly. But, and that's why the economy went down so dramatically. But, you know, as some people have said, this is the first government-induced recession. Right. And that's just the reality of it, because at some point you have to stop the flu from spreading. Europe has been effective in doing that. The United States has not. And until 
we can find a way to stop the flu from spreading with a vaccine, it will continue to hurt the economy. Now, the stock market has not responded in the way that I think a lot of people have expected, but that's mainly because the stock market is looking out several years in the future when the stock market is anticipating that we will have dealt with the Spanish flu rather than looking at the immediate picture, which is quite dire. And, and you meant to say coronavirus, I think. The coronavirus. Yeah, right. Okay, so in other words, the stock market is showing optimism, or is that yes. just a result of the massive money pumping printing that is going on? Is that real optimism, or is it you know, just induced by the Fed and the government? Well, it's definitely induced by the Fed and the government. However, I think what the stock market is doing is trying to anticipate what the post-coronavirus world will look like. What will be the companies that are successful? What will be the sectors that will not do well? You know, energy is doing very poorly. Consumer staples, in a lot of cases, are doing poorly. So there's this massive reorganization of the economy that's occurring. And the stock market is trying to anticipate that. Now, they're probably overestimating the good side to companies like Amazon, Apple, the FANG stock, and underestimating the negative impact to companies like JCPenney and others. But I think that that's what's going on. The stock market is trying to anticipate where we're going to be five years from now, what sectors are going to succeed, and which ones will fail. Yeah, so... When we look at that, actually, let's just talk a little bit more about the Spanish flu, if we can. What was that like post-Spanish flu? 1918, in 1920, we had the Roaring 20s. And for a decade, everything was roaring, if you will. And then, of course, the Great Depression. Is that how we're going to come out of this? Is is that going to be, you know, are we going to have the Roaring 20s again, you know, starting in a year or so? Well, I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, the uh, not after the Spanish flu was controlled back in 1918, the stock market did start to bounce back. I mean, if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average back then, it really sort of tread water in 1918. But then once the war was over, the Spanish flu was taken care of, then the market bounced back. And I anticipate that that's what's going to happen here, that once we find a cure for the coronavirus and people can see that you can have music concerts again, you can go out, you can do things, that the market will bounce back. You know, I've been predicting for decades that we're going to have a great bull market in the 2020s, because if you look at the 20s for every decade in history, you have had a massive bubble. You had the South Sea bubble in the 1720s. You had the bubble for the South American stocks in the 1820s. You had the roaring 20s in the 1920s. And, you know, you've had sort of a plateau here in most of the world. So you have laid the foundations for a large amount of growth in the 2020s. And so that is our prediction that we will have a bubble in the 2020s. I've written several articles on that path. So just to be clear on that prediction, the prediction is coronavirus is either treated or there is a vaccine and everybody feels safe again. And then we go into a booming economy and 
how long would that last? Oh, I think it would last several years. It would last, you know, probably for most of the decade. And, uh, you know, especially since the Fed now is feeding money into the economy, bonds do not provide an alternative. And so people will put their money where it works. And the stock market and real estate is where it's working. I mean, you're going to have a massive realignment of the real estate market because now people, more and more people will work from home. And I mean, that's what's happening at our company. And so people don't want to be stuck at a place where you're in an urban environment that you hate to be in. Why not be out here in San Clemente on the beach if you can work from home? Oh, I totally agree with you about that. That is a massive shift. And that does not bode well for high density urban environments. Uh, Cities are really going to hurt very badly. You know, as I've been saying the past several months, you know, the two biggest danger zones are elevators and then mass transit. Those, Those are the things that all the environmentalists want. They want people in high rises and little boxes and taking mass transit. And uh, I think there's going to be, well, I think there already is a huge rebellion against that and a major, major push, just a a mass migration really to the suburbs. And uh, No, I agree completely. And that's just going to be the reality and the readjustment that's going to take place. Yeah. So it can't be reversed. Do you think that continues, though, after there's an effective treatment or vaccine? I think it will. Yeah. I mean, because me too. most people prefer to work from home. I mean, that's just the new reality. Right, right. And, and not just that, though. I think there's going to be a level of PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder about this. Because even when, let's just remember, folks, even though it didn't affect most people's lives, it was nothing like the doomsayers had predicted, but... You know, remember the, your thoughts about swine flu and H1N1 and, and you know, even mad cow disease. And th- everybody knows there's another thing coming. This is just the history of right. the world. There's always something. And, you know, say there is no virus concern. Maybe it's just civil unrest. And now we've got that. And guess where, where that is? It's in all the high density urban areas. So uh, let's get another reason to get out of those areas. And people have discovered that they just don't need to live in a city anymore because the technology has solved that problem for us. And there's just going to be an anticipation. What if it happens again? Yeah. I'm going to be prepared. I'm not going to take a chance. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree completely. Well, what else can you tell us about history of of the last thousand years? I mean, you know, most of my guests cannot talk about that effectively. They can talk about what happened in the 70s and, you know, the the uh, Great Recession in 2008, but they're not going to talk to you about the bubonic plague. There's another one, right? Or or whatever yeah. else, right? And we actually have data on bubonic plague. We have data on housing prices that go back to the 1200s. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting was during the bubonic plague, of course, one third of the population got wiped out. But of course, one third of the housing did not get wiped out. So there was the largest drop in housing prices in history. In and, twelve, and so that's twelve hundred A.D. Okay, so it, you yeah. lost a third of the population. Oh, in the thirteen hundreds. Okay, and you lost a third of the population, and you didn't have, I guess, a housing shortage back then. So that no. was a significant loss of demand, and then the existing supply was still there. Tell us more about that. 
Yeah, and so it actually took several centuries for housing prices to go back to the level that they were at prior to the bubonic plague. Wow. And, you know, it, it really, if you were a worker, you were just living in heaven almost yeah. because you were in high demand because right. there were not as many workers available in the labor pool as there had been prior to the bubonic plague. And so that everything shifted. Feudalism came to an end, in part because of the bubonic plague. And those are the long-term impacts that you can see. I mean, you're talking about low interest rates. Well, the last time that interest rates were this low was back in the 1800s. And so if you really want to study what's going to happen in the future in the economy, you have to go back to before World War One when interest rates were low and see how the economy reacted when inflation was low. I mean, the anomaly really has been over the past 80 years when interest rates and inflation increased dramatically from the 1940s to the 1980s and then decreased dramatically. You're just simply not going to have that pyramid that you've had in the past. You have to look out of what's going to happen in an environment where there's little increase in demand because there's little increase in population. and your interest rates are low, your inflation is low, it's going to need to have a complete change in the mentality. And the only way that you can understand this is by looking back to the pre-World War I world, which we've collected data on. Our data for the stock market goes back to 1601. So we can look at four centuries of the behavior of equities throughout the world to understand how they have responded to different environments. And that's really the advantage of having several centuries of data is that you can look back to what happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago when you have circumstances that come up that haven't really occurred mm-hmm. for centuries or decades. If you're only looking back over the past 20 years, you don't have a full picture of the world and how financial markets are going to react to new circumstances. Now, but, but that almost seems to contradict what you were saying at the beginning of the show. I mean, interest rates are actually lower now, but they were they were very low then, I guess. And now they're even lower, right? Correct. Yeah, correct. And in those two instances, you talked about 1800s and pre-World War or about World War One. I, I think you said. Well, yeah. Well, interest rates were low and declining throughout the 1800s. Mm-hmm. They bottomed out about 1900 and then steadily rose really for most of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And then they declined towards the past 40 years. And we think it's going to return to the situation in the 1800s where you have low interest rates. And you have to look at how commodity markets, how real estate markets, how other markets existed in an environment of low interest rates and low inflation, which we anticipate is going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years. So reliability of data, when you go back over such a long time, I mean, you're talking about housing prices in the 12th century. How do we know? You know I mean, that data just cannot be very reliable, right? How do we even know? Well, there were monks back then, uh-huh. and monks came track of all of the prices that their monasteries had to pay. Mm-hmm. And that's our source of oh. the data for, you know, the 1700s, the 1800s, all of these 
data is available from newspapers. Mm -hmm. And so we go back to the London Times mm -hmm. or the Oxford Dhamsha Courant or other papers, and we take the data directly from the newspaper. Oh, interesting. So it'd be okay. similar to going to the Wall Street Journal today. Sure. So we have gone back to the original sources that monks have provided us, mm -hmm. that newspapers have provided us, collected the data, organized it into a digital format, and then provided us the centuries of data that we have. Yeah, fantastic. So, so, so 800 years ago, it would be monks that we're talking about. And but, but they weren't all over the world when we talk about, you know, housing prices in what areas? I mean, it's a big, it's a big world, obviously. What areas are they addressing? They can't be addressing a, a worldwide market, right? No, it's mainly Europe. Yeah. Mainly France and England is where the data come from. Okay. The English monasteries collected this data back to the 1200s. There were local city governments in France as well as monasteries that collected it. So, yes, I mean, the data is localized mm -hmm. to France and England and Italy. And then we use that to extrapolate to the rest of the world. Sure. Yeah. Very interesting. That's fascinating. What else do you want to share with our listeners? Maybe something I haven't asked you, uh, just, just anything. Well, we just know that it's important to have an understanding of the past in order to anticipate the future. That the world today is similar to where it was 100 years ago. And if you don't look at the past, if you don't look at stock market commodity prices, other factors over a long period of time, you're not going to be able to anticipate where we're going to be over the next 10 years. I mean, I think everyone's prediction of higher interest rates and higher inflation is just wrong. I think that we have a new era in which the government is trying to ensure that we don't have high inflation, that we do keep things under control. And that's my contrarian analysis of the market. Yeah. And, and you say it's contrarian because usually low interest rates create inflation. You're saying this Correct. time it's different, right? Yes, this time it's different. Okay. And just, Although, just to completely understand you, why is it different this time? It's different this time because interest rates will remain low. Right. But that would cause inflationary pressure low. or no? What, no, what? no. Okay. The lower interest rates are a response to low inflation, not vice versa. So we anticipate that inflation will remain low. If inflation remains low, interest rates remain low. And that's in part because of the lack of demographic growth that is out there and the lack of GDP growth that will come from that. Mm -hmm. Okay, good stuff. Give out your website. Our website is globalfinancialdata.com. And there are hundreds of articles and blogs that I have written that are up there under the insights section for people to look at, read and understand and learn from the past to understand the future. Good stuff. Dr. Brian Taylor, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, 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 o